without any further ado, Sister Michelle. For those of you who don't know, um, and I see that many, in fact, the majority of the people in the audience today are um, new since COVID, <laughs> which is kind of amazing, isn't it, Pastor? It is. If you look it out absolutely here, is. It really is. So, um, Pastor Ronnie and I alternate last Sundays of the month to bring the message. So it's my turn today. Before I start, I just want to say I have five beautiful, fluffy ladies at home that give me so many eggs I can't eat them all. And uh, I was just wondering, uh, would you, do you eat, uh, who eats farm fresh eggs and doesn't mind that they've got a little bit of hay on them? Okay. (laughs) Pastor is taking us through 1 Timothy, as you know. This is uh, Paul's opportunity to teach Timothy about how to maintain leadership and order in the church at Ephesus. And does everybody remember that we've been doing that? And he's taking us uh, pretty much verse by verse, which we really appreciate in this church, that he is committed to standing on the rock of the word of God. And that, that's what you can expect from Pastor Marcus, is that he will be steadfast in that. He will bring us the word. He will not bring us his own little funny ideas that's, that he made up. He's not going to tell you God told me. He's going to say the word of God says. And um, there was a verse, a pair of verses in First Timothy 2 that are extremely controversial. We've already passed that. Now we're, I think we're already to chapter 6 of First Timothy. But I'm going to go back to these uh, two verses in First Timothy 2 because they're extremely controversial in the church. And I want to be able to take the opportunity to talk about them. I'm going to read them to you now. If you'd like to turn to your Bibles to 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12, I will read them to you. I'm reading from the NASB, but you can stay in whatever version you're in. You know what I just realized? I forgot your Bibles. I left them at home. I'm so upset at myself. We got a pair of Bibles for you, and and they're sitting in my bedroom. A lot of good that does you. Oh, well. Okay. Anyway, next week, be patient with me. First Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12 says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Do you notice that we've been remaining quiet today? Now, Pastor taught this verse as being culturally specific rather than being universal for all churches in all times. Because there was a unique problem going on in Ephesus at that time. One of the seven wonders of the world was the Temple of Artemis. And that was located in Ephesus. And there was um, a female cult surrounding that temple. And the women were leaders there. And they taught there, and they had pagan practices. They had sexual rituals there. They had all kinds of funky stuff going on. But the women were the ones that were leading in this cult. So can you imagine that these women are getting saved, and then they come into the church at Ephesus, and and they're just naturally sort of bringing their habits with them and their behaviors that they're used to in their other pagan place of worship and uh, because of that Paul has to just say wait a minute ladies get your feet down as my husband would say to me get your feet down quiet down a little let the men teach you you need to be submissive here 
You need to just back off and learn. Learn, okay? So that's what he's saying to them. That's the interpretation that's given by our pastor and by actually this denomination that we're part of. We're part of the Church of God, Anderson, Indiana denomination, and they take a stand. See, I think I even have um, just a quick excerpt from their position that they take. The distribution of gifts by the Holy Spirit for the edification of the body of Christ is not determined by gender. God has poured out his spirit on all people. That's the position of this particular denomination. But many churches and denominations take these verses in 1 Timothy as a rationale to prohibit women from having authority over men or from being in a position of authority in a church, from preaching, from even standing up on the podium, for teaching classes that include male students, because that would mean that they would have authority over a man. Some people take it really far and others don't. You know, it's it's all different. Um, the, the women in Corinth were particularly also uppity women who needed some correction. And we find that in First Corinthians, um, Paul says this, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, I can tell you that when I first read that, I marched right up to Pastor Fred, Marcus and Ronnie's father. I said, what what gives here? What is this all about? And he said, calm down. Everything's fine. He was speaking to a specific group of women that needed a specific correction. And that's the way we look at the women in Ephesus. That's the way Pastor taught it a few weeks back. Um, But these are verses that, again, bolster the reasoning of those who would not want women in positions of authority in the church. So basically, First Timothy 2 has been taking me uh, for the last few weeks on a on a journey. And I've been really studying in on these points because I don't want it to be up to me and my reasoning. I want to do what God wants, even if even if God says something that I, I have a hard time with. If it's his word and his desire, I want to follow it, you know, because he and I don't do things. We wouldn't plan things out in the same way. I have to trust that my way is not really the best, that God's way is the best. So I I really delved into this in a big way, and I just want to share some of my journey with you. In fact, I I see myself standing here um, for the next few times that I'm going to be speaking with you. We're going to be returning to this topic in different Areas, Because there's so much to talk about. And the reason that I want to share this journey with you is because it opens the door for us to discover about the interlinked roles of men and women and how those roles touch back on God's original design for humanity. They touch on the way Jesus treated women and what that means for you and me, because he was pretty radical in that way, by the way. And it touches on the future glory that, that kingdom of God that's going to be coming in that time that we call the day, when the day comes, that's going to be touched on as well with this topic. So these verses that we've read may cause us to question whether women and men are equally valued in God's eyes. We may bristle at the suggestion that women are to keep silent or to subject themselves. As we read in Ephesians 5.22, for those of you who are married, there's There's a hierarchy in marriage that's very clear. 
wives are to submit to their husbands. The uppity ladies of today. Am I the only one here? Come on now. Come on, let's see the uppity ladies of today. Okay. We don't take kindly to such suggestions. Uh, but we can't make our decisions based on what we want. Like I said, we've got to make our decisions based on what God wants. So I've been listening and I'm hearing all these interpretations from notable and very trustworthy on both sides, Bible scholars. And um, some read the text exactly as it's written and, and others uh, read it in the context of the cultural challenges of the day. And I just want to emphasize that people on both sides love and honor women. People on both sides love and honor Jesus. People on both sides seek to do the will of Jesus. They're just reading things differently. And this is not one of those essentials. This is not a non-negotiable. This is not a deal breaker. This is one where we can respectfully and humbly disagree and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not like we're questioning the Trinity. It's not like we're questioning the deity of Christ. It's not like that. This is an accessory issue. So we're not going to explore these arguments today. Although I'm actually curious to know, is there anybody who's actually interested in hearing what the arguments are for and against? Okay, here's one, two, three, four, four, five. Okay, we have five women who are interested. So maybe I'll bring that in in one of a future study. I feel like I'm going to talk about this forever. It's that rich. No, it's that rich. It's that rich. I hope with this teaching today to encourage you to understand that you as a man or you as a woman are made with purpose in that gender role. There's a purpose to that. It's not accidental. And we play different roles, but we are equal in the sight of God. And we can look to Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. It's at the foot of the cross. We're all sinners. We all lay ourselves down at the foot of the cross. And we're equals there. However, you still use the ladies' room, ladies, right? And Paul did not ever mean to say that the slave should no longer be a slave in his day. He didn't tell the free man to become a slave. He didn't tell the Jew to become a Greek or the Greek to become a Jew. He didn't say any of those things. They retained their distinctives. And so it is with men and women. While we are equal, we are distinct. And we have separate roles and we have unique roles. So let's start at the beginning. Let's go to Genesis 1. 26 through 28, in which God consults with himself. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Skipping a little, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now listen carefully. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it so first God makes it clear that he's created humanity and the creation of humanity is of first importance we understand that because he mentions it first first we're human but then he divides us up into male and female and that is secondary 
yet it is an essential expression of who we are as humans. God specifically creates them, male and female. He blesses them, male and female, and he commands them, male and female, to fulfill the, what we call, we call it the dominion mandate. When he says, go and fill the earth and subdue it, that's called the dominion mandate. And what that means is, you know, grow the crops so that they serve you, keep the cattle so that they serve your needs, take care of your oceans and your air and your rivers, because it's, it's your stewardship, it's your job to steward the earth, to manage it. And he says that to man and woman, male and female. In Genesis 2, we have an expansion of that creation story. We learn that God creates man first by, he creates him first by breathing life into the dust of the earth. And you remember that after he made all the things on that week of creation, he said, it is good. It is good. It is good. But now he says something isn't good. It is not good. What is not good? He says, it is not good for man to be alone. So he creates the female. And he calls her the suitable helper for the man. This word translated suitable helper, we're going to learn some Hebrew now. Everybody ready? Ezer Kenegdo. Ezer? Repeat after me. Ezer? Kenegdo. Ezer Kenegdo. Okay. So Ezer is um, help. Um, you, you probably have heard of the name Ebenezer. Ebenezer Scrooge. Eben Ezer is the rock of help. Eben is a rock of help, the rock of help. Who is the rock of help? God is the rock of help. Um, in fact, just to be sure you know that this isn't just some little helper like a, a, like the, the elves help Santa. You know, they're kind of little and they, they get in the way, but Santa is the main attraction, right? Or some little helper like you watch a movie and the star of the movie, he always has a little friend, right, who helps him. He can get killed off in the story, but... The main attraction doesn't get killed off. The helper can get killed off. This is not that kind of helper. When we read about the Ezer Konegdo, we're reading a word Ezer that is used to describe God himself. Let me read three examples from the Psalms. And the word Ezer is used in each one of these. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help, my Ezer. And my deliverer. And finally, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help. He is their Ezer. So the Ezer Konegdo is the indispensable companion who matches and corresponds to the man as a suitable partner, a co-leader, a counterpart. Do you want to hear that definition again? The indispensable companion who matches and corresponds to the man as a suitable partner, a co-leader, a counterpart. So while we're equal, we're not the same. The male was formed from the dust of the earth, while the female was formed from the rib of the man. When God pronounces judgment on the man and the woman after the fall, after they've been disobedient in the garden, he judges them differently. He judges the woman that she'll have pain in childbearing. That's a female thing. He judges the man that he'll have toil and sweat in his work. That's a male thing. So we are equal and different. Today, I'm just introducing the issue of the male and female roles 
in God kingdom, God's kingdom. I'm just introducing it, and I hope to continue it later. But for now, I want to share with you and, and break down one particular teaching picture that we find in Scripture. And that teaching picture is going to be the emphasis of the rest of this teaching. Now, do you all understand that when we look, for example, at Abraham taking his son Isaac to the mountain and sacrificing his son, we see a teaching picture of Father God sacrificing his son for humanity. For example, when we look at the Passover, we see a teaching picture of deliverance from sin, from the bondage of sin, when we look at the bondage in Egypt and the deliverance. These are teaching pictures. This is how God teaches us. Well, we have a teaching picture today that I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to say I never saw it before. And it's just so magnificently beautiful you're going to love it if you've never heard it. If you are going to, if you have heard it before, you'll just still love it because it's still beautiful. And I was just so glad to, to have this. You know, when somebody opens your eyes to see something you never saw before, it's just like, ah, oh, it's like, oh, that's just a lovely experience. So I want you to have that today. And it is in reference to the creation of Eve. I'm going to read to you from Genesis 2. Verses 21 through 23. Genesis 2, 21 through 23. I'm really glad you got here for this part. (laughs) So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman, the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. I'm going to read it one more time because we're going to go into these deeply for the rest of the teaching. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The teaching picture that we're going to be looking at with these verses is a picture of the relationship between Jesus and and the body of believers, that is the church, the elect, the ecclesia, the called out ones. And before we go further, we're going to make sure you all know what that means. When we say the church, we do not mean the building. We do not mean this congregation. We do not mean our denomination. When we refer to the church of God, we're referring to an invisible collection of people dating back to Adam and Eve, and dating forward to the end of time, anybody who believes in Jesus as the Messiah is in the church. Now, you could be sitting in the pews, and you don't even know if the person next to you is in the church or not. God knows. We can't make that presumption. It's invisible to us. We can't see into people's hearts like God can. So the church is the body of believers, and it covers all time. All right, now that we've got that straight, 
the teaching picture that we're looking at in this verses is the, is the picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church, the invisible body of believers. First of all, um, we should know that I'm not doing anything terribly unusual in comparing Adam to Christ because Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, that's Jesus, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Okay, so it's not too much of a stretch to compare Adam and Jesus. Jesus is the second Adam, the perfect Adam. So starting from the beginning of those verses, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. We know that sleep is one way of speaking of death. Paul says we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. And Jesus himself, when he's speaking of his friend Lazarus, Lazarus that he's going to raise from the dead, he said he has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. So death and sleep are also comparable, just as Adam and Jesus are comparable. And God put Adam to sleep to make a new creature, and the Lord God caused his son Jesus to enter the deep sleep of death to make a new creature as well. And that new creature is the church. Next, he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. God took one of Adam's ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Part of man was taken out of him to make a woman. It was kind of like a biopsy. And then the incision was healed. Jesus was pierced in his side at the place of his ribs. From John 19, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. The blood of Jesus was shed so that the sins of humanity would be paid for. And what came out of that was the church that enabled the church to be born. He was pierced, yet he overcame the piercing by his resurrection. Because he was made whole again when he came back to life. Now, on a side note, he did keep the pierce. Because we know that he asked Doubting Thomas to put his hand in there. So he kept his piercings as an indication that he, you know, when we go to heaven, we're going to look for the one with the nail prints in his hands. Next, we read that the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. God fashioned the church to be the bride of his son. We know this when we read in Revelation 19, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb, who's the lamb? Jesus has come and his bride, who's the bride? The church has made herself ready. So God fashioned into a woman the rib from Adam, and he fashions the church to be the bride of his son. And God presented the woman to Adam. He says, here you go. And Jesus presents the church to himself. We read in Ephesians, Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself, God is presenting to himself, the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Moving on, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
Adam sees the woman as part of his own flesh. Jesus sees the church as part of his own body. We read, so husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. Isn't that pretty? Isn't that beautiful? The Bible begins with a marriage of Adam and Eve, and it ends with a marriage. Jesus and his church are married at the marriage supper of the Lamb in the book of Revelation in the end times. We have yet to see that consummation, but it lies ahead for us. This is going to be the consummation of God's redemptive work in bringing us, his church, into perfect fellowship with himself. It's complete. There's nothing missing. It's better than the best earthly marriage. It's eternal. And it's really defined by love because the sacrificial love of Jesus is exactly what made it possible. So how are men and women to behave in our Christian walk with this information? What good does this do you? I would say that we should walk together in humility before one another, in mutual submission, men submitting to women and women submitting to men, and recognizing that God has a plan for each of us as a man if you're a man, and he has a plan for you as a woman if you're a woman. It is a God-given gift, and it matches, and it fits together. It's a coordinated scheme. God has created this cosmic drama with this beautiful teaching picture that we just looked at. And we're part of it. We don't just exist in isolation. We're part of God's picture. We're part of a very big drama that God has created for our benefit. So basically, all that's left now for you is to be sure that you are a member of the church. You can be a dues-paying, tithing member of a church church, and not be in God's church. Do you understand that? Is there anybody here who does not understand that? I want to make that so clear to everyone. The church of God is not only our denomination. The church of God is an invisible body of believers. And all that remains for you now is to be sure that you're part of it. So is there anyone here who has any doubts about that, who would like to make sure that you're in the church today? Because the benefits are incomparable. And they are eternal. They include relief from the guilt of sin. We've all done stuff that we hate to think about. But God can do something with where we've been and make us into something better than we've ever dreamed of. He has a transformative power that no other, no other lowercase g God in the Hindu religion or the Buddhist or the Islamic or the Jewish without their Messiah can offer. Only Jesus can offer this. Only Jesus. And he tells us, I am the way. No one comes to the Father but by me. So if you'd like to talk to me afterwards and you'd like to become a part of this 
invisible church to ensure your eternal condition as safely sealed against the wrath of God. Please go ahead and talk to me afterwards. Otherwise, let's just end with a prayer. Lord, uh, thank you for your beautiful teaching pictures that are sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. We understand that the Old Testament is so relevant and so important to us because you have poured yourself into every word. And we just thank you for the beautiful picture of Jesus and his church, the love that he has for the church that comes from his very pierced side, that he is raising up to be spotless and holy, that he might present it to himself as his very bride. What kind of love is that? What wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul, oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this? We just thank you for this time of reflection, and we ask that everyone present will turn their hearts toward you, wherever they are in their walk with you, that they would take a step closer to you in, in whatever way is unique and personal to each one. Thank you so much for this time. Amen.